Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you enjoy this podcast, have been blessed by this podcast, or have been challenged by this podcast, or if you hate this podcast, but you just can't stop listening to it, and you still, for whatever reason, want to support the podcast, uh, we would appreciate your support so much. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. It's patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. And... Support the show for as little as five bucks a month. This is a listener-supported podcast, and I cannot thank you supporters enough. There's over 250 of you who are supporting the podcast. Can't thank you enough for your ongoing encouragement and support. And um, if you support the show, you get access to a Theology in the Rock community where we have dialogues, conversations. You get to ask questions that I sometimes address on the podcast. And you get access to other premium content like once a month, uh, Patreon only blogs or uh, once a month Patreon only podcasts. I actually have two different tiers uh, of support where you get access to either one or two Patreon only podcasts where we discuss many, many juicy topics, even juicier than the ones that come up on the public free podcast. If you don't have any money or don't want to support or you just love free stuff, then thanks for listening and uh, don't stop listening. Uh, this is a volunteer listener supported podcast. And if you can't afford it, then that's awesome. Just please be a generous person and make sure you're giving to the poor on some level. My guest on the show today is a guy who I have, um, I can't believe it's taken me this long to get to know Dan White Jr. I don't know if you know the name Dan White. He's written three books, uh, The Church as Movement. Subterranean and the recently released Love Over Fear. Love Over Fear is about, it is such a relevant book. And I'm so bummed that we only talked about this book at the tail end of the podcast. So make sure you listen to the whole thing to get a little, you know, back and forth dialogue about the actual book, Love Over Fear. But Love Over Fear is a book that addresses the outrage culture that is saturating our society today and is saturating the church. Specifically, the the political left and the political right seem to more and more absolutely hate each other. And that hatred has spilled over into the church. And Dan White is, as you will see, the right kind of guy to address that uh, problem. So love over fear. D- Dan White Jr., he, um, he co-planted Axiom Church in Syracuse, New York. And more recently has transitioned to a full, to be a, a full-time church planning coach uh, with the V3 movement. And you can see a link to the V3 movement in the show notes, I hope. Hopefully I'll put those in there. And uh, I just, I, we talked for the most of, most of the podcast, we just talked about church ecclesiology, um, his specific kind of approach to church and church planning. And I... I, I knew this would happen. I mean, he is a brother from another mother. This guy just, I, I just resonate so much, so much on so many levels with how Dan White Jr. is thinking about church, Jesus, the kingdom, God, the gospel, the Holy Spirit, and so on and so forth. So please welcome to the show for the first time, but hopefully not for the last time, the Dan White Jr.
All right, I'm here with my uh, my new friend. Um, a, a, I'm going to say a friend that I've known and respected through social media, even though we've never met or talked in person or on the phone. Um, I think we've corresponded a little bit on on, on Twitter. I'm sure we have, um, but I've always appreciated uh, Dan's thoughts on uh, church, on enemy love, on just what it means to be a um, a Christian, really. I know that's so cliched and broad, but I just, I, I so resonate with the way uh, Dan thinks about uh, the church and Christianity. It's shocking that this is the first time we've actually spoken in person. So Dan White, thanks so much for being on Theology in a Raw. Oh, thanks, Preston. It's a joy. So you've been a church planter, a coach, and now you are a full-time coach for, is it a, a v, the V3 movement or V3? or? Uh... Yes. Yep. The V3 movement uh, is a ecumenical church plant training coaching organization um, helping church planters start a discipleship core uh, a group of six to ten people who enter into a rule and rhythm of life together and then um, are um, physically present in a specific neighborhood for the sake of mission and uh, the witness of love, and then building that discipleship core to a mid-sized community, a group of 20 to 50 people uh, that is a porous community that allows those to belong before they believe and and observe the witness of the discipleship core. Um, And then when it gets to about 40, 50, it multiplies um, rather than building higher and uh, it it multiplies into a new neighborhood or network. And so that's the training we do. And uh, that's what I've been doing for the last uh, six, seven years. And specifically uh, the last year full time. Can you give us a maybe narrative on your journey uh, in, well, your, your ecclesiological journey? I mean, just (laughs) just in the the two minutes you described your church, it's like, wow, that's kind of a different way of thinking about church, although it seems like there's more and more people, you know, kind of oh, yeah. rethinking the, the fundamental structure of what it means to yes. do and be church. But can you give us your, from a narrative perspective, your ecclesiology? Yeah, Preston, I, uh, I had a meltdown uh, around, it's, it's been around 12 years ago. I was pastoring at a booming megachurch. Uh, and this is not going to be a, an anti-megachurch rant, um, but I had a meltdown in that environment. Uh, realizing how uh, divorced from uh, community and from spiritual formation and from uh, embodiment with real people in a real place. I was uh, just running a lot of systems and, uh, and was acknowledged and affirmed for my skill set of preaching and communication, but I wasn't really living in an incarnate life. And uh, that started to have an erosion on me, and um, I ended up turning down a teaching pastoral role in that environment, and um, that got me, uh, it it sent me out into the wilderness when I said no to that. And so uh, I started to rethink what it meant to be the church, and instead of uh, um, ripping and tearing and getting rid of the church, I actually found myself being more passionate about minimalism. Hmm. Um, although that first year I was outside of uh, specifically a church environment, um, I was in the wilderness. I was licking my wounds. I was depressed. Hmm. I thought there was nothing left for me. If I couldn't lead in that environment, I couldn't lead anywhere. All my training, all my preaching, all my seminary education was about how to 
uh, lead in that uh, environment. And so um, as I started to explore the New Testament, I realized that I was actually in love with the church, um, but a minimalistic version of it. And so um, 10 years ago, uh, I set out with a, a group of friends to start an intentional um, an intentional faith community in an under-resourced neighborhood in Syracuse and uh, didn't really know how to do it or what we were doing. There's probably a lot of idealism that had to be uh, stripped off of us, <laughs> honestly, but um, there was some major commitments, four commitments actually, tight-knit community. We wanted to share life together, uh, life-forming discipleship. We wanted to train together um, and be developed together boundary crossing mission uh, we wanted our lives are to be present um, outside of uh, um, our, our, our presence to the way of Christ outside of uh, to our meeting um, and then um, locally rooted presence we wanted to be in tune and connected and listening to the beauty and brokenness in the neighborhood and so those four things really anchored us and over that whole thing was just really a submission to the Lordship of Christ. And so there was a lot of experimentation, a lot of trying and, um, but that was my journey coming out of, out of the Christian industrial complex into <laughs> a more, into more movemental way of being the church. Um, what do you mean? My, what do you mean by a, can you unpack a minimalistic? You've said that word twice and I think I know yeah. what you mean, but just for the sake of clarity. So minimalism, uh, I pick up my imagination around minimalism from art and, and specifically minimalism in uh, the artistic world. And that was a strong movement to simplify the palettes of painting so that beauty can actually be seen. Um, and so in, in minimalism and being the church, it's realizing that so much excess and extra um, in privilege and the machinery of ministry just clutters up the simplicity of following Jesus on mission with others. So for me, it's about paring back uh, our need for ministry machinery. Um, and that could be as much as like, uh, I'll just give you like what it looks like a little bit. Like, I don't love stages, specifically an actual stage. I think that can clutter up um, teaching and preaching. And so, uh, now that I wouldn't be um, legalistic about that, but we make decisions based upon our value of not allowing anything to try to get in the way of Jesus and the table of Christ and following Jesus. And so, um, anyhow, that's that's mm -hmm. a bit of the the minimalistic kind of um, yeah. move. Well, uh, tell me about the financial structure. Do you have like? Sure. Paid pastor, no paid pastor, uh, a mortgage for the building, no mortgage, or mm. um, is it flexible? Yeah, so these are, I mean, these are all contextual decisions that people make, but um, in the movement I'm part of, and then even my local uh, Christian community, uh, we've decided not to ever pay a pastor full time. We pay part time um, so that um, our leaders still have a foot um, in, in the world, although... Um, you know, that I wouldn't say the world's not in the church. I mean, the sacred secular divide is, is mm -hmm. it, I don't think exists. Um, but we found that if we can cap the pastor's salary at part-time, that allows them to stay present vocationally 
in their neighborhood or in their city, um, rather than just um, 40 to 50 hours a week of running church programs for people who like church stuff. So um, every time we need to hire someone, it's always around a 20 hour a week. Um, we, we live in polycentric leadership. Uh, so the leadership structure is mutual. There's no head at the table. Okay. Um, it's oriented around strengths and gifts, specifically the fivefold, um, which is Ephesians 4, prophet, uh, apostle, prophet, shepherd, teacher, evangelist. Um, and so um, there's, there is power, there is leadership, but it's shared amongst a group, um, which um, ma- makes sense why we only part, pay part-time instead of just having one person having uh, all the authority. Um, financially, when it comes to stewardship and how we uh, run our, you know, own a space, um, we own a building, and we, we see this a lot in our movement. We own a building that's primarily known in the community as a neighborhood space. So ours is a coffee shop. It has some nonprofits on the second floor. It, it's, not a, it's not exclusively for church activities. It's a space for mm-hmm. – uh, it's a pathway. It's a corridor. It's, it's, it's creating mm-hmm. um, an entry point for those who are not Jesus followers and Jesus followers to collide with each other in the same space. So we, we have um, purposely um, leased out parts of the building for people doing social good, maybe a Jesus follower, may not be a Jesus follower. And so therefore, none of the, the church's uh, ties or, you know, or gifts are going towards the maintenance of the building. It's self-sustaining. Hmm. Um, and this, this is back to minimalism. It keeps it nimble and flexible so that it's... Um, you know, our church budget isn't bloated trying to carry the weight of all these church um, necessities. So mm. um, it's not perfect. It's still messy. Yeah. Um, but it it just gets us closer to the fire of mission and to mm. uh, actual people living in our neighborhood. And so, yeah. um, so I don't know if that helps to bet no, the that's, church. No, that's great. Um, it sounds, I mean... Uh, I asked you before we before we hit record, you know, what what are some movements or maybe even church planning gurus, people, whatever that would seem to that, that your uh, ecclesiology would resonate with. I mean, when you talk, it sounds kind of like um like an uh, Alan Hirsch or even like Francis Chan's doing in San Francisco or um oh, I'm blanking on his name. Um oh gosh. Uh, Hugh Hugh is it Hugh Halter? Yep, yep. Hugh's actually a part of our team. Oh, he is. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I don't, yeah, I've very... never talked with Hugh, met Hugh, or read anything by Hugh, but whenever I talk about kind of like, you know, people ask me, like, what's your ecclesia? What do you think church should look like? And I start describing it, you know, and, and people say, oh, so you must know Hugh. I'm like, I've never met or read anything, but apparently my ecclesiology is similar to mm. uh, Hugh Halter. So he's part of the V3 then. Is that? Yeah, he's a coach. Yeah. Wow. Okay, yeah. cool. Awesome. Yeah, I, we're certainly influenced. I, there's two significant influences because V3 is not, we're not uh, inventing this. Right. <laughs> right? <Yeah>. There's, <laughs> we haven't stumbled upon some, some new secret sauce. Um, but, the, you know, the missional movement, uh, Leslie Newbegin, um, right. uh, and then those who've kind of wor- worked off his work, Alan Hirsch, okay. uh, thinking about the movement of the church, um, is a major influence on us. Um, Alan specifically is a, is, is a mentor for okay. the V3 movement. And then Anabaptism, uh, okay. which probably the, is probably the second arm, which is the valuing of shared life and community and a nonviolent approach to um, following Jesus. And 
and Anabaptists, uh, pretty intense uh, passion around discipleship. Um, okay. And, and then also understanding that the, the, the church uh, is a politic in and of itself. It is um, the visible uh, um, witness of a new way of being uh, in the world. Mm-hmm. And so those two things kind of come together and create um, attention and, and a space there. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, those what's been some of the um, – can you give me a, one of the biggest challenges – you even yes. mentioned you came in with maybe a lot of idealism and, and you know, like yeah. you said, it's not perfect. What, what are, what's maybe the biggest or some of the biggest challenges that you've experienced the last 10 years? And then I want to ask you what's been the biggest blessing, the, you know, the thing that mm. has been just the most beautiful about this yeah. way of doing church. I mean, the biggest challenge is consumerism. Okay. Um, the, the, I mean, that's the, that is in the water it's so saturated in everything that we do. I'm a consumer. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything I interact with is about whether I like it or don't like it. Um, it it's quality. Um, my individual perception of it's good for me or not for me. Um, very passive relationship, but highly um, consumptive. And in doing church this way, the you are slamming up against that false god. I mean, you're just when people go to church, they still expect church to produce and create an experience that meets their felt needs and makes them mm-hmm. have a good experience. Mm-hmm. Which means all mess needs to be eliminated, all clunkiness, all uh, all all error. Um, Everything has to be excellent. Um, everything has to meet affinity needs, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, needs for moms, needs for toddlers, needs for men, needs for young adults, needs for 55 and older, uh, needs for people who are into skateboarding, needs for people who are into, you know, it just goes on and on and on, affinity-based, which is a very consumptive way of viewing the church. And so uh, being the church this way, that's, that's what you're ramming up against. Hmm. And um, and it can be a really easy temptation to slowly surrender that ground because that's hmm. what makes people happy and content in coming mm-hmm. or participating in your church. And, and within no time, you find yourself maintaining a buffet of, uh, of things just to meet people's needs. And you're saying the, well, yeah. my assumption would be that the p- kinds of people that would come to – the the church the type of church you're describing would sure. not be um well not be consciously consumeristic but you're saying it's just so ingrained <laughs> into this even though you're attracting people who are wanting something different it just yes. constantly falls back into that Pre- preston whether uh, someone has experience in the church or not whether evangelical or their mainline consumers is is just in their bones and so they people come to our church who want who are often um in, in, in within the three movement who are kind of burned from yeah the church industrial complex or um have no experience in in church and still within a few months they're asking hey when are you going to start this or when are yeah. you going to do this and um, because our, our six day a week life is based upon excellence. I mean, I get pretty ornery if my Amazon shipment doesn't come to me in within two days. Yeah. Right. 
Um, and so quick return, all those things are still just a part. It's not just a Christian cultural uh, or evangelical yeah. uh, seeker sensitive uh, challenge. It's, it's, it's just the way, so it's an issue of discipleship. So we find that most people's uh, journey has to actually uh, break that idol, mm. uh, be discipled out of those demands. Um, I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer does great with this when he talks about this in Life Together, you know, his mm. classic work there, is that we actually do damage to the Christian community with our idealism. And that's what consumerism is it's it's an idealism around how it should meet my needs mm -hmm. um so uh i'm curious i'm curious I, yeah. so i lived in the uk for three years i just got mm -hmm. back from uh spending a month in europe and i'm i'm constantly i mean even though europe and the uk is still western yeah the level the intensity of consumerism is way down yes and i notice this when i go out to eat like in most european well is the uk Certainly in France, when you go out to eat, it is highly offensive for the waiter to uh, bring you the check. If you mm -hmm. don't ask for the check, you can sit there for five, six, seven hours, and they will never, they will never even say, would you like your check? Because that's like, mm. it's just not rushed. And they're not concerned about flipping tables because they don't make, yes. you don't tip in Europe. And so they're just making oh, an wow. hourly wage. They may take a half hour to come to your table. They may take your drinks, your drink order, and then come back an hour later. Everything is just so slow. And that, that kind of like restaurant experience, which I was reminded of last month, um, and, and how... It takes a while for me to de detox, you know, for them, a meal is so much more than just boom, 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 you know, consume yes. and go, consume and go. And that kind of reflects the culture huh. as a whole. One of the most beautiful things about living in Scotland was how people just didn't, you know, really important high profile professors had like way outdated carpet, small homes, no furniture, yeah. one <laughs> car, if that, you know, and it just wasn't, yeah. uh, and I really enjoyed not being in sort of the rat race of um, yeah of consumerism as intensely certainly they have it but not as intensely anyway my whole yeah. that's all background to I sure. wonder if this model of church does it work better have you experienced in non like does the does, does yeah. the American brand of consumerism intensify everything you're talking about Preston you're I mean you're right on the 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 traction we, I mean, we see traction in the U.S., but I mean, the, the serious traction that we see is actually outside of mm. the U.S. Okay. And um, I think it's because they don't have some of the cultural hurdles um, or the memory of bigger, better, faster um, that we have. Um, and so it, it, there's, a, there's a unique sin in the U.S. around productivity. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, that's what that's why people uh, <laughs> that's why people come to the U.S. Yeah. In, in some good ways because it is you, you know you can make a name for yourself here and you can um, in some sense be successful on our shores here and so, but when you baptize that into Christian um, uh, Christian community you've got a monster you're dealing with. And so I do think it's harder here in the U S okay. um, but that would, that makes, that actually makes me uh, buckle down even harder sure. into faithfulness and realize that this is a peculiar way that has to be piloted. Um, it's slower. Um, mm -hmm. it, I, I don't, it's, it's not the fast track to, um, to growth. Um, so anybody looking at 
being the church this way um, can misinterpret the, the word multiplication and think, oh, that's just fast uh, addition <laughs> over and over and over again. Yeah. It is not. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard slug, um, but it's, it's, to me, it's a more rewarding and more fulfilling way of being the church. But it is slow, um, mm-hmm. and it takes a long, a long view rather than a short view. Oh, wow. That's so the, the blessing. Okay. So we've been kind of like, mm. I, I, it can become That's frustrating good. butting up against consumerism, <laughs> but what's been the greatest blessing or blessings in the last 10 years in your church experience? That, um, there, there, so for as post-Christian as we are, Syracuse, the city I'm in is exceptionally post-Christian. Three and a half percent of the population attend church on a regular basis. Wow. If those stats are correct, but you know, there's there's very few people within the city limits that are attending church regularly. It's not even part of their active life. So the question is, is why? Um, is it because there's not a lot of good options for church? No. I mean, our suburbs, we have some really fruitful, successful churches. Um, I, I really do think that the, 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 the rub has been the MO of the church. The uh, the characterization of the church has um, not been good here. That being said, the blessing has been that when people are given space to re-explore the person of Christ um, away from the industrial complex and the personality-driven approaches, and um, there it, there actually is a re a resaving that I'm seeing. I, I, I've seen people find Jesus as um, as real for the first time, hmm. um, and it's because uh, I don't think many people have actually looked at the the words, works, and ways of Christ closely. Um, so I, the blessing for me is that the, I think the future of the church is actually quite hopeful if we uh, allow people and um, move our discipleship to, to the actual person of Jesus. Hmm. Um, So I've seen just a lot of, a lot of lights go on. I've seen people uh, actively choosing the way of Christ. Um, I see people healed from uh, uh, really destructive forms of Christianity. Hmm. I've seen them move out of uh, um, dis, you know, environments where they were raised in maybe highly liberal environments where there's no order and there's no orientation. There's no safety of like, uh, um, who am I? And what are the boundaries that when they find Jesus and they find the authority of Christ to be uh, not coercive and not controlling, but highly invitational, uh, they actually find a path to walk on. So I, I, there's a lot of hope for me in, 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 in that. And that's been the blessing the last 10 years. That's awesome, man. I, so um, as somebody who would, ex- myself being somebody who um, battles with de-churched yes. tendencies, um, sure. you know, I tend to uh, gravitate towards other de-churched people. And um, I even uh, a couple of years ago uh, planted and then closed down a church plant it was very much similar to what you're talking about. And a lot of D church people uh, were at that church. So I, I'm, I'm around a lot of D church people and sometimes mm. D church people, again, speaking as one can be really fussy and opinionated. About yes. <laughs> and so um, 
how have you navigated those challenges? Because I imagine you kind of made passing reference. You get people that have been burned by the church that, you know, have opinions about what church should and shouldn't be. And maybe they're initially attracted to your model, but then I can imagine that presents its own, you know, could present yes. its own challenges. How do you navigate that with <laughs> wisdom and grace? Yes. Um, well, you, you, you put your finger on the elephant in the room. I mean, this is the, 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 the reputation for uh, churches like mine and like those in the V3 movement, the reputation is at least is that they are toxic and right. um, they don't, they're not sustainable um, because when you get wounded people around, um, yeah. if they don't name and seek healing, uh, they will just leak toxicity on each other. Yeah. And, um, so you can't rally around the kingdom of God when, uh, you're centering your wounds mm -hmm. and, and out of, out of that naturally comes uh, a really bloated um, opinion about how things should and shouldn't be done because they didn't do it right. That, you know, right. the church as we know it is, um, is off and we're, and we're on, you know, the, and so that, then, then you're just rallying around antagonism. Um, and that just is not sustainable. Um, so for me, my experience in this is that, this is this is not a way of being the church because the church sucks. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, this is a path of um, repentance and healing, and mission, and both of those, all of those, are active engagement. It's it's mm -hmm. actually kenosis. It's self-emptying. Um, it's it's moving away from and towards rather than just you know sitting around um, a, you know a bonfire and, and stoking our anger. So yeah. Um, you have to have an intentional discipleship around healing. Um, all of us are wounded. I mean, if you were raised in a family, whether it's uh, uh, both parents intact or single, your parents wounded you <laughs> unintentionally, not purposefully. You carry, and this is just the cycle of, of life. We, we, uh, we, we think our parents didn't do it the right way and hurt us in some ways. And this is the same cycle as the parent of the church. You know, we, we, and, and when we move into new forms of church, we're going to find, we have to have some existential humility. We're going to wound people just like um, in ways that we didn't want to be wounded and yeah. it, it, because humans hurt humans. <laughs> and so you can't get away from that. And so if you don't, uh, call people, invite people, and disciple people specifically in how to heal and let go and forgive um, and, and live in a space of grace for how flawed we are, uh, then they'll be rallying mm -hmm. against the en this enemy for the rest of their lives. And that's, you know, that's not nourishing. And so I don't yeah. know if that helps a little no, bit. No, that does. Um, yeah, I mean, in my own journey, I've, I've, I've found I'm the healthiest when I can, first of all, love the church in its New Testament sense, you know, if it yes. ever spills into not, it's one thing to be discouraged or not even enjoy modern day church structures. Sure. Okay. But you don't want that to spill over into to actually not caring about the actual church of exactly. the New Testament, the people of God. Um, but even, even beyond that, my healthiest 
moments are when I can have a particular vision of what I think church can be, should be, what I would like it to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even there, I'm, is that consumerism or is that, you know, a, a, a holy discontent? Um, while sure. still affirming other yes. models that I personally would not necessarily right. think are the most productive yes. or my, in my, you know, private moments might be critical of, but I can still genuinely yes. say that pastor is doing a wonderful job. That yes. structure has pros and cons like any structure and God yes. is working through that and do, and, and genuinely say that, not just give platitudes. And I feel like it's really been more just recently where I can hold to my kind of idealistic ecclesiology, right. you know, and, but also say, you know what, this mega church pastor, this person, they're, you know, yes. I mean, I think they, they're doing good work, you know? Yeah. I mean, Preston, that's, that's, a, there's a lot of emotional maturity to embrace that tension because when you are, uh, when you have a really passion and an opinion about how church should be, yeah. it's easy to just demonize everything else. And so even in my experience in the megachurch I was in, God moved. Mm-hmm. Uh, God did sure. significant things there. Um, yeah. I cannot throw that baby out with the bathwater. Although that's not the environment that I uh, think is the most uh, right. conducive for gardening. Uh, <laughs> right. um, but uh, it's okay. And I can live um, – and be co-laborers for actually for the common good with uh, pastors and leaders in that environment. Um, And my, and also confess honestly that uh, this, this movement away of being the church is not for everyone and it's okay. Right. Um, Right. So if my ego is attached to my form of church, that's when it turns into the same thing that I uh, found distasteful in the other environment. So, I mean, that's just emotional maturity is being able to live into that tension. Um, Have you experienced, I imagine you roll with a lot of different pastors. Do you, do you experience that pastors are maybe more in a traditional setting that feel threatened by what you're doing? Um, or do you get along with, you can hang out with the pastor of mega church or whatever, a traditional church. And, and you can talk about your ecclesiology and they're like, Oh man, that's awesome. Or is there a kind of an underlying <laughs> rub, <laughs> you know, cause we, cause we, I yeah. mean, leaders can become so, there are identities can be wrapped up into the very thing we've created and invested our life in doing. Yes. So it's kind of like, I've, I've seen this with missionaries, you know, there's always, you know, there's been a, um, I think a healthy overhaul in how we do missions over the last 30, 40 years. And some yes. old, old school missionaries might feel threatened. Like, you know, gosh, right. it's this new way of doing missions. What are, you know, the last 40 years of what I've been doing, you know, is that just not worth anything, you know, and, and uh, mm. hopefully that's not our intention to, to do yes. that, but we still do need to be rethinking paradigms and, you know, trying to get back to the new Testament vision of how God wants us to live. But uh, yeah, that's a yeah, long question. I, that's, that's great. Yeah. I, I do. Well, I see a few things. Um, I'm just being uh, as explicit as I can. I mean, for some pastors that, uh, and I, I, you know, I get to coach, all over the country, just modeling a different way is is a thorn in the side of, mm. of some pastors because their ego is completely wrapped up in what they're uh, what they're doing and what they're trying to lead their congregation into. And um, so, in those environments, I'm actually less prophetic. Uh, okay. And. I just, I, I mean, I just want to be uh, wise like a serpent and as gentle as a dove, you know, and trying to find kind ways to connect with them. Um, because, uh, you know, we're all going to get 
the kingdom is going to come in its fullest and we're all going to be humbled by how little we knew about how to be the church, even me. And so yeah. um, I don't want to, you know, live, be in that environment as a, and actually, if you're, if you're too harsh of a prophet, you, you're going to, you're not going to be at the table any longer and you won't even actually have that conversation. Yeah. And so finding ways to be winsome is really important in those environments. The other pastors, here's the, here's the explicit part is there are, I, I, I probably have uh, four or five handfuls of pastors leading traditional booming churches hmm. who privately and quietly in their office tell me if they could do it another way, they yeah. would. But the the industrial complex has gotten so big that yeah. they can't – there's no way out. So, um, okay, so and now my- they have to live in an – they have to live in this tension about what they want uh, – and around what, you know, what they've created. In my experience, I don't have a statistic for this, like a wealth, you know, studied, but that, I think that's at least a growing number, a sizable minority, if not the majority of people I know, and maybe I'm in certain circles that, you know, I I don't know, but I'm shocked, but no longer shocked at how many people deep down, Christians, thought leaders, leaders, pastors, actually, you know, hear you talk about the church and say that that is that is a beautiful thing. Yeah. I would love to be in that kind of environment. Have you sensed that? I mean, it just seems like oh. there's a growing number of people that are just yes. tired of the complex. It's ex- I mean, it's it's exhaustion that is making your average pastor leader think, "Can I keep this up? Yeah, um, can we keep this up?" And and the and 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 I mean, the writing is on the wall in that. There's just so much discontent with what we're even producing. Even the sexiest churches in the block yeah. aren't the, – the, there's just a lot of discontent. And so when you're working so hard as a pastor leader and there's just not a lot of love <laughs> for what you're, you're doing, uh, you find yourself exhausted and burnt out. And so I think, I too, pastors – um, and in giving them the benefit of the doubt, they read their Bibles. So if you just read the New Testament, you start yeah. seeing a form of the church, and you often preach that from the pulpit, but you don't practice that in your ecclesiology. And so, I mean, I, I, I hear pastors who are leading um, churches that I wouldn't enjoy preach the same things that we're talking about now, but they just haven't landed in their practice. They're, they're more, um, you know— share life in community, uh, love your neighbor. Um, you know, uh, we need to live on mission, but the, they haven't restructured their ecclesiology so that people can actually live into that or mm-hmm. at least give them a, a chance to live into that. I think that the, the longing and the want and the exhaustion is there, but I just, I mean, we're just having to, we just got to keep the machine yeah. running. So in, in your experience, in your church model, um, do, have you seen a much, a higher degree of authentic discipling relationships happening. Um, Cause the, the, the assumption is, Oh, if you do a small church or something like what you're doing, then, you know, authentic, natural, solid, sure. you know, open relationships are going to naturally happen. H- have you experienced that? Or is that always a challenge no matter the size? Yeah. I think discipleship is, uh, is uphill no matter what environment you're in. Um, it might be just a little easier when you strip away all the ex- excess because okay. they don't have the option to just feast on the buffet of Christian right. um, 
offerings. But it is always uh, counterintuitive to for people to warm up to the apprentice. Uh, you know, when, when the Apostle Paul says, come follow me as I follow Christ, that that creates an automatic rub. And so for his, and I find this um, that uh, in my experience the last 10 years, people want, uh, this is why coaching is so big and self-help books. People want betterment. They want change. They want to tr- transform, but they don't want the actual interpersonal rub. And so uh, because uh, it's easier to say I've changed my mind or I'm a different person because I read five books or because I listen to these podcasts every week um, or I, I got coaching via an hour on, on, a, on, a, on a coaching group. But when it comes to localized, embodied, physically committed discipleship, it rubs our human nature wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, when I'll just, when my discipler, uh, his name is Dr. Snyder, um, told me at one point, we were meeting together, told me at one point that, um, he said, Dan, I, I just need you to hear this. You are, uh, you're a bit of a know-it-all. <laughs> so when you're hearing that across the table in friendlies, do they still, is friendly still open? I don't even, I don't even know what that is. No. Oh, it's a diner. It's oh, a classic it? diner. Oh man. <laughs> Maybe it's just a Northeast thing. So friendlies is a diner. You know, we'd go to go there and, and me and discipling me. But at one point you just said, Dan, you're, you're a bit of a know-it-all. Wow. That hurt yeah. hard. It's much different than just reading, uh, you know, a Henry Nouwen book that says people can tend to be know-it-alls, yeah. right? That there's a, there's a, there's a, there is a rub there. And so I still find it's deeply challenging and to get p- people who want transformation to actually enter into an apprentice relationship where they are learning how to follow Christ in the way of mission under the Lordship of Jesus. So th- that's a difficult, it's still there. Uh, yeah. And that's why the home church movement, and not to throw them under the bus, but even the home church movement has a tendency not to be a discipling environment and more just a um, a space of belonging and not a space of becoming. Hmm. So we all want to belong to, to people. And that's why, you know, I actually attended a home church in that one year I had my wilderness. And I belonged to those people because we all had shared wounds. But becoming which is the step of transformation and repentance and reflection um, and, and seeing yourself in, in the good and the bad. Uh, we didn't move in that space because that actually would, um, mm. we, we really didn't want to hear that. We just wanted to belong to each other, not become. So is that, is that how think, you would distinguish your movement from the typical home church movement? And of course, this is a generalization, there's yeah. overlap, but the, the becoming yeah. and belonging? I don't want to be unfair there because I, I mean, I've visited, you know, 50 or 60 home churches over the last few years. And um, there are people doing, doing, taking discipleship yeah. seriously in those environments. But there, I think the home church movement historically did react against the industrial complex mm-hmm. and all forms, all structure, uh, all um, intentional, intentionalities just dissipated because of the deconstructive nature of the home church movement. Um, and it didn't reconstruct it. it, it, it um, but 
so I think that the V3 movement and in, in what we're trying to do, it does take some of the beauty of the home church movement, which is, uh, which I think the, the home church movement helped recover the table mm-hmm. um, yeah. as a way of uh, gathering. We gather around uh, the, you know, the love feast, the agape together um, that was lost, I think, in the industrial complex and recovered in the home church movement. I think the next step is, is concrete discipleship um, and um, training people for mission in, in a local particular yeah. place. So. So what? So Francis Chan's home church thing in San Francisco sounds more like what you're doing because they are so intentional on yes. training leaders, raising up leaders, and intentionally multiplying mm. community. Like there is a forward kingdom movement happening. It's not just yes. a reaction um, yes. against the industrial complex. The end. You know, it, it is very much ha- has a specific mission mm. and direction. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I have to look more into to Chan. I haven't um, explored him in a few years, but um, I mean, I when I when when if someone loves uh, the scriptures, you know, they, they love and especially they they love the life of the New Testament and what God what broke into time and space. Um, yeah. It moves you into intentionality, and so if that's right. what you know, Francis yeah. is doing, it's just like we we that. You know, that's the, that's the minimalism of yeah. uh, the movement of the church. Yeah. Um, so what you do, I mean, as a coach, you fly around the country and meet with people who are wanting to start one of these communities or how, what, what is it? What does the A to Z look like in terms of you going and helping um, yeah. another community like this start? Yeah. So the, um, the primary way I'm, I'm part of a whole team. So it's, it's not, you know, I'm not the, it's not a solo operation. Right. Um, there's a team of coaches and we people sign up for a nine month regiment. Um, okay. And every single week they get on a coaching call and are, are, um, are trained in uh, a succession of uh, disciple, the ways of discipleship, boundary crossing mission, tight knit community, you know, locally rooted presence. And they work through that for nine months on the front end, we have an intensive, we get together in Philadelphia, you know, uh, uh, there's about 200 of us and we'll come together and, and do a live training. And then my role is I, I, I fly and visit and I'm like, I'm more like a doctor. (laughs) So I come in and troubleshoot and nurture, um, because this way of planting is hard and it exposes your own, um, your own ego. Uh, and, and in your own sin and, uh, your own temper tantrum with, uh, um, things not working the way you want them to work. And, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, my, that's my role is kind of on site coaching and care kind of these, these visits around, mm-hmm. um, the, the primary thing that I see, uh, fall apart in this movement is, um, is around um, leadership relationships. Okay. Um, I th- the if a, a, a core of leaders can't li- see because this 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 really exposes our Im- emotional immaturity. In the other environment, um, 
our personality drives things, our vision drives things, our communication skills drives things. And if we hold the seat of lead pastor, then our way drives things. Now, we would never say that overtly, but that's kind of the culture. That's how culture forms over time. When you move into this more movemental way, you can't make people do things. Um, you, you're not centering your personality. Preaching is not the primary orienting uh, phenomenon that people are coming for any longer. Mm. And your emotional immaturity starts to come to the surface because you have angst and anger that it's not growing fast enough. People aren't doing what you want them to do. Um, they aren't responding the way you want them to respond. And so you either move towards coercion and violence and control. Hmm. Um, and I, we see this both in men and women, um, it, probably more in men, but all of us have been, uh, what's the word, have been, been kind of uh, malformed into a way of leading. Hmm. So when you're in a flatter environment, I wouldn't say it's completely flat, there, you're just your your tendencies to force things or demand things is exposed, and so hmm. uh, people's uh, it's 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 yeah. yeah. So I don't know if that helps a little bit. That's no, where I'm does. seeing. That's where we see this environment presses. That's the peer. That's the um, the point of pressure. So if somebody's um, listening and they're intrigued and maybe even interested in exploring what it could look like to be. Um, coached by either you or one of your team, what would that, what, what's the first step that somebody would take? The, the best place to go is the v3movement.org and just apply. There's an application on there and it's a short application. And that, that kind of sparks the, we call you, we start to explore okay. where you're at and when you're, what your vision for planting is, what your history is. And then you would enter into a, um, if you got accepted, we'll, you know, we'll have about a hundred applicants and we only accept about 50 or 60. Oh, wow. Um, because, uh, because Preston, not everybody's ready for the journey. And uh, we have a few prerequisites. We want you to be on site of where you're planting. We want you to have uh, a core of people, at least four people that are with you. Okay. Cause this isn't about uh, a solo journey. Um, yeah. And some people are still in a place of antagonism and anger and you can't really plant out of that. Right. Um, okay. You're going to just gather more angry and antagonistic people, and so totally. Um, so that's that's the journey is application, and then there's a bit of an interview process, um, and then hit September for nine months. You're in a you're in a weekly uh, accountable training hmm. relationship. Um, that's awesome, man. Um, you've uh, we're going to wrap things up, man. But you've, <laughs> you've uh, I want to make sure I mention I, I'll I'll mention this. Well, <laughs> I have mentioned this in the pre-recorded intro that I haven't actually actually recorded yet. But if you're listening, you've already heard it or however that works. Anyway, your, <laughs> your most recent book, Love Over Fear, is it out yet coming out? Where, is, where are we at with that? <laughs> right. We were supposed to talk about I that. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, man. I, listen, this is, it's, 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 it's all kingdom. Yeah. Um, it, it came out about a month and a half ago. Okay. Um, and what's yep. it about? What's the gist of the book? Who should read it? Why should they read it? What are they going to get out of it? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a blue collar. Uh, I was just, I told you earlier, Preston, I wrote, I tried to write it at an eighth grade reading level 
it's it's addressing the uh, the fear that the left and the right have progressive conservative have towards each other, oh, and wow. how that's creating a massive void of uh, of anger and hatred and um, and excessive rhetoric about uh, each other, and how this creates a monster. Um, we see each other as monsters, and the only way to kind of break open space or um, bring down that um, stronghold between each other is to move towards enemy love. Wow. So it's really birthed out of uh, uh, my local practice. And being an Anabaptist church, we have people who would identify in all along that continuum. But during the Obama and uh, Romney election, believe it or not, uh, 2011, we had a major uh, disruption uh, where people um, just didn't want to be with each other any longer wow. and called each other names and ruined each other on Facebook and all wow. that garbage. And, uh, and I wasn't really ready for how to offer a, a third way or a way beyond this attack or avoid mm-hmm. way that we engage with people who have different beliefs than us. And so mm-hmm. um the book is not really about ideology. That I, there's a lot of people writing about ideology. I really wanted to write as simple as I could about this real emotional, practical feeling of f- fearing and hating someone yeah. who you repelled by. <laughs> the sort of out, <laughs> and the how out, do you practice perfect love casting out fear? The, so, out, the kind of outrage culture, right? That seems exactly, to be – yeah. It seems in my, and I'm not old enough to know if this has always been here or it's a new thing or it's just been escalated, but it seems in the last couple of years, um, maybe leading up to Trump and Trump magnifying that, there's the, not just Trump, but like the the Trump era, the, the wake yes. of what he's created. Because um, I see it on both the far right and far left oh, yeah. equally, almost identically, oh, <laughs> where the rhetoric yeah. and everything is, is very similar. Um do you, do you, so have you seen an escalation in that kind of the intensity of the outrage that seems to be tethered to not just political systems, but the whole ideology, the ideologies that are sort of wrapped up in the, maybe those systems. Has it been in more yeah, intense I, the last couple of years? Yeah, I think we're, I mean, it's on steroids right now. Um, yeah. Preston, there's always, I mean, for the last 2000 years, I mean, even since Genesis, you know, three in the fall, there's always been this either or polarization conflict um first you know first move towards violence towards each other whether it's verbal violence or physical violence i mean it's just that's 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 the uh the sin of all time in the face of Mm -hmm. the other but now because of technology it it is viral Hmm. and in it is part of our our life all day long especially if we're connected into twitter facebook and cable news it's just constantly in our grill yeah um the you know the the barna uh, no it was uh it was actually gallup just put out uh in 2016 that whether you know the research is always a little a little funky but uh if conservatives 78 percent of conservatives only have conservative friends 72 percent of progressives only have progressive friends which is pretty much the same stat right Right. um we're we have further moved away from each other to the point where very few of us have people that vote differently than us that are deep friends right and this is the this is the result of polarization and i i think i really think this is um 
always been there, but it's, it's, it's at, you know, the fire is, yeah. is moved out of the bonfire and is now burning up the forests in California. It's yeah. just yeah. off the chain. And so if discipleship, if uh, teaching people how to follow Jesus doesn't call them into how to love their enemies beyond sentimentalism, beyond esoteric ideas, into practical affection for people they hate. Hmm. Uh, it's not the way of Christ. Hmm. Um, and that's what we see in the, in the Gospels is Jesus is inviting his disciples into these hot spaces um, where typically they would not go and they would not be. And even the makeup of the discipleship group itself, I uh, did a lot of research on that. It's fascinating, the political polarization in the first 12 disciples. Um, and wow. Pharisees, Essenes, the Sicarii mm -hmm. party, the Sadducees, uh, the Zealots were all represented actually in the first 12. Right. Jesus is busting up polarization even in his very first selection of his disciples. And so yeah. I just think it's a lost, uh, a lost message um, yeah. because it, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> it, no one wants to love their enemies. Uh, yeah. We want to hate our enemies. It's natural. Do you have uh, do you personally do you have an, a, a political identity affiliation leaning or do you try to I mean I would imagine you're probably a centrist whatever that means but I, I don't know do you have <laughs> you know uh, that's a good question I don't typically like to answer that <laughs> <laughs> I don't even, I don't even know how I would answer that you quite know honestly. I don't here's know. the thing uh, in I have never voted uh, Preston um, once uh, in. Okay more out of conviction than, than apathy, uh, as yeah. an Anabaptist, yeah. um, there's, I have some specific reasons for that. That has, and I don't put that, I don't push that on, 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 on everybody. Um, and I don't actually don't think that it's, 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 um, doctrine or theology or even right or wrong. It's, it's a way I extrapolate from the text. So I hold that lightly, but mm. personally, I do think it's given me a vantage point of seeing how, fundamentalism within the conservative and progressive spaces mm -hmm. operates. Um, and I say fundamentalism in the way that we hold our beliefs, not what we believe. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've always thought the Anabaptists, if people are familiar with their history 500 years ago, have always found some unique vantage point from seeing how violence works from both sides. And so um, in some places, I kind of someone could interpret me as leaning conservative, and in other places, people interpret me as leaning progressive. Um, yeah. But for the most part, uh, I try to be a peacemaker um, and an, and a, a, a prophetic disruptor yeah. <laughs> to call people out of those <laughs> entrenched, you know, yeah. locations they're in. Dan, thanks so much for being on Theology and Rod. Again, the book is Love Over Fear. And my goodness, ha having heard you unpack that, I can't think of a more relevant book to check out. You also have two other books, uh, Subterranean and uh, the award-winning book you co-authored, the, the Church as Movement. So uh, the, the website, loveoverfearproject.com. That's loveoverfearproject.com. And also, once again, what's the, the V3? If, if somebody's interested in your church plan, the church planning side of you, um, sure. that's uh, the V3 project. What, what's the website? The, the V3movement.org. The V3movement.org. Dan, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it, man. Oh, thanks, friend. Thanks, friend.